Please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We're looking at Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 16. And so we're resuming this sermon series through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And, and this text today begins a, a new section, which is also a prayer. Um, this is uh, Paul's second prayer in his letter to the Ephesians. You may remember he ended Ephesians 1 with a prayer, and now um, he ends Ephesians 3 with another prayer. And we're going to be looking at this prayer over the next few Sundays. And so it'll, it'll be a, a sort of mini-sermon series within the larger sermon series through Ephesians. And, and today's sermon is, is in many ways a, a sort of introduction to, to this prayer. So we'll be talking about prayer for the next few weeks. And so with that in mind, how's your prayer life? How would, you, how would you begin to, to, to rate it? I mean, how do you even begin to, to think through that? To evaluate it, to reflect on it, how do you even begin to, to answer that question? You know, our, our prayers, our prayers actually reveal a lot about us. Do you realize that? I mean, I know that, that many of us in this sanctuary, that we, we know each other pretty well. But I'll tell you, if we, if we were to know, if we were to know everything that, that we've prayed about the last week, the last month, uh, this last year, if we were to know what each of us all prayed about and how earnestly we prayed for it, how fervently, how frequently, then we would learn a lot more about each other. See, our prayers reveal, in somewhat of a unique way, our prayers reveal what, what really matters to us. What really matters to us. Our prayers reveal the areas of our lives and the lives of those around us that we, that we really want God to, to move and work in. Reveal to us you know, how big we believe our God is. And how much we really believe that we need him. The theologian John Stott put it this way. One of the best ways to discover a Christian's chief anxieties and ambitions is to study the content of his prayers and the intensity with which he prays them. We all pray about what concerns us and are evidently not concerned about matters we do not include in our prayers. Prayer expresses desire. Now, on the one hand, I would say that there are certainly matters that maybe we don't pray about, that, that we are concerned about, and then that do matter to us. But I, I think whenever we don't pray about them, I think that reveals, really, that we think, well, we can handle those areas. Not necessarily those areas aren't important, but we, it, it, it communicates, it reveals, you know, that we think, okay, you know what, I, I'm big enough and, and, and competent enough and, and able to to kind of manage that and oversee that myself. And so I don't really need God's help there. See, our prayers reveal you know, what we really desire, what our anxieties are, what our ambitions are. Now, the, the title of the sermon, as you can see, is the, the why, the how, and the what of prayer. 
And, and I, I wrestle with whether or not to include that, that title. And, and the truth is, I spend very little time thinking about my titles. And, and I wrestle with this one because I was worried that somebody may read it and think, okay, Richard's going to believe that he can get up here and, and give us a, an exhaustive sermon on, on the incredibly massive and, and crucial topic of prayer. And that's not possible, okay, and that's not my aim. But rather, I just think that the, the why, the how, and the what of prayer is just the outline that, that Paul has in, in the, these few verses. But I do think that there's a lot that we can learn about prayer. And Lord willing, a, a lot that we can, can grow in, in in our own prayer lives, in, in the quality of our prayers, the earnestness and the frequency from studying the Apostle Paul's prayers. Studying his prayers we find all throughout uh, the scriptures, but especially this prayer in Ephesians 3. You see, here in this text, in Ephesians 3, that Paul allows the Ephesians and us to, to listen in. He allows us to, to eavesdrop, if you will, on his prayer that he prays for them. As one commentator put it, who has not read and reread the closing verses of the third chapter of the Ephesians with the feeling of one permitted to look through parted curtains into the holiest place of the Christian life. And yet Paul invites us to, to look through parted curtains, if you will, into his prayer closet in these closing verses of Ephesians 3. Now we're just going to be looking at the very beginning of it, verses 14, 15, and the very beginning of verse 16, but I'm going to read all of the prayer from verse 14 to verse 21 today and each week that we're still looking at this section of Scripture, because I don't want us to miss this, the totality of the scope of this prayer and so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. So we'll be looking at these three verses under the following three headings. What Paul prayed, how Paul, why, sorry, why Paul prayed, don't get the, these questions right, why Paul prayed, how Paul prayed, and for what did Paul pray? So why did he pray, how did he pray, and for what did he pray? And then we'll be looking at the, the what in the weeks to come in more detail. We'll just barely begin to touch it today. So first, why Paul prayed. So look with me at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So he's giving us the reason why he's praying. And the answer is because of what God has been doing and is doing in his church. 
See, notice that phrase, for this reason. He's telling us why he's praying in that phrase, for this reason, takes us back to the very beginning of Ephesians 3. It takes us back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, where we read, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then there's that dash, right? Not the hyphen, but it's a dash. And then Paul interrupts himself, and there's this Holy Spirit-inspired digression of sorts where Paul goes on to elaborate about and explain his, his calling as the apostle to the Gentiles to, to preach to them the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that goes on from, from verse 2 down to verse 13, this interruption that Paul does of himself. And then he goes right back in verse 14 with that phrase, for this reason. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So in verse 14, the reason he bows his knees in prayer before God the Father takes us back to what he was talking about, what he had written at the end of Ephesians 2. So let's go back there to the very end of Ephesians 2. Verse 19 to 22, Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what Paul wrote. Within the very next verse in Ephesians 3.1, he says, For this reason, then he interrupts himself and he comes back at the beginning of our text in verse 14 and says, For this reason, going back to this at the end of Ephesians 2, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. See, Paul had just finished writing this, this stunningly incredible statement of what God had done through Jesus Christ in uniting Jew and Gentile, Jews and non-Jews, people of all stripes and types all over the world together in Christ. That now, through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, God has and is bringing his redeemed people together from all ethnicities all backgrounds, all tribes and tongues and nations together as one holy temple being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As Paul would go on to say in Ephesians 3, as fellow heirs, as members of the same body, members of the, of the same one spiritual family, partakers of the one same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So put another way, Paul had just made this incredible statement of what God has done and is doing through the church, this declaration of what the church is intended to be, this, this dwelling place, this new temple where God to dwell um, by the Spirit. And now Paul prays to ask God to give the Ephesian Christians the spiritual resources they need to live out this high calling, to be this type of church. To be who Christ has, has called them to be, has, has made them to be. Okay, so, so why did Paul pray? Because of what God has been and is doing in his church. But there's also, Paul prays, because he knew the Ephesians' needs. If you remember a couple of weeks ago how that, that section ended, um, how what we read in, in Ephesians 3 verse 13, that Paul's worried they may lose heart. Paul wrote, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. 
See, Paul prayed. Why does he pray? He prays because of what God has been and is doing through his church. But he also prays because Paul loves this, this church. He loves First Presbyterian Church of Ephesus. He loves them. And he knows about their needs. And he's concerned. And so he prays that they would not lose heart because of the news that he is in this Roman prison. And Paul knows that that they need God's enabling power to live out this calling in Christ. And so he prays for them. Now, in in a few weeks, whenever we eventually turn the page to Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is going to, to, to really switch from declaring these indicatives and these truths about what God has, has done for us and in us and, and to us. And we're going to turn to, then Paul begins to give out imperatives and a lot of commands. And he begins to exhort the, the Ephesians. But notice, before he exhorts them, which he's about to begin to do in the very next chapter, before he exhorts them, he prays for them. Before he exhorts them. And these are exhortations they need to hear. He's going to give them imperatives and commands that that, that, that they ought to obey. They need to obey. Commands giving to them in love for their good, but before he exhorts them, he prays for them. I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about the people in your life, the people you love, the people you care about, the people who you feel an obligation to exhort The people who you feel an obligation to to speak to and to act in their life because you see behavior that really does need to change, perhaps even disastrous behavior, that you see see wrong-headed beliefs, false beliefs that they've embraced and and, and people you care about and you, you want them to think differently about God and his world. How often do you pray for them? How often do you pray for them? Friends, don't underestimate the difference it can make in our families, in our friendships, in our ministries, in our lives, if we begin to pray for these people before we speak to them, before we attempt to take action ourselves. And that's not just something I'm saying to you, I hope you hear it. I'm saying it to myself because I am the type of person who tends to speak and act and then only later think and reflect and pray. Now, it's better to pray at some point, okay, but it's even better, I think, to pray before you speak and before you act and before you react. What what difference would it make if we began to pray for them before we were exhorting them? And please never, ever, ever, ever stop praying for those people. Don't give up on that person. Keep praying and begging God to move and work in their hearts. You see, why does Paul pray? Simply put, Paul has a big view of God. He's got a big view of God. He's got a small view of man, a small view of himself. He knows that that he can't change the lives of these Ephesians. But he knows that God can that God is the all-powerful God, and that God loves these people, and that God is able to change hearts. He's able to change circumstances. That God moves and works through the prayers of his people. As Charles Spurgeon put it, prayer is the ship which brings home the richest freight. 
It is the soil which yields the most abundant harvest. Do we believe that? Yes, there are things that we need to say and and that we need to do, but, but do we believe, do we believe that prayer is the ship that brings the richest freight? Do we believe that? Or how about this quote? This is a, it's a very simple quote, and I, I've never forgotten it the first time I read it, from Arch, uh, William Temple, Archbishop of Canterbury. When I pray, coincidences happen, and when I don't, they don't. So why does Paul pray? He prays because, because God is a big God, and he knows what God has been and is doing in his church, and he knows that the Ephesians have great needs. And he's praying to a big God on behalf of his people there in Ephesus. Okay, now let's look at how Paul prayed. There's a lot we can learn here. And so look again at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. The first thing to notice is that Paul prays to the Father. Now, it's not wrong to pray to God the Son or to pray to God the Spirit, but the overwhelmingly... uh, common model for prayer in the new testament what's most common is to pray to the father in and through the son by the power of the spirit that's how we almost always see paul praying to the father through the son by the spirit so paul prays to the father but notice paul prays to the father as a son to the father as a son so look with me at verse 14 and 15 together For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, verse 15 is tricky to understand, and commentators and theologians differ a little bit on what it means. See, because verse 15 could possibly mean that every family owes its origin to the purpose and will of God the Father. And, And that's true enough, but I think that that misses really the heart of what Paul's saying in verse 15. In fact, I agree with translators who offer an alternative translation of verse 15, which would be, okay, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth receives its name. Which means the whole family in heaven and on earth, the the, the totality of all the redeemed people of God, those living on earth and those who are now living in heaven, bear God the Father's name including Paul, including the Ephesians, including you, dear Christian. See, put another way, Paul is not simply praying to the Father, but he's praying to his Father, to our Father. Whenever you pray, you're not just praying to the Father, you're praying to your heavenly Father. And that's a point that that Paul's been making all throughout his letter to the Ephesians. That if we are in Christ, then God is our heavenly father, not merely the heavenly father. And Paul's made this point in Ephesians 1, in Ephesians 2, and in Ephesians 3. In Ephesians 1, verse 2, we read, Grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in Ephesians 2, 18, For through him, through Christ, we both, that's Jews and non-Jews who are in Christ, have access in one spirit to the Father, to our Heavenly Father. And then earlier in Ephesians 3, verses 11 and 12, this was according to the eternal purpose 
that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We, have, we, we can have boldness and confidence as we approach God our Father's throne of grace. And so look back now to our text, verses 14 and 15. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family or the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. So do you understand what this means for you? What it, mean, what it really means for you, not just for other people, not just for me, not just for the person beside you, do you realize what this means for you, dear Christian? God the Father has given you his name. Paul's point is that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, regardless of your background, regardless of of what you think about the name you were given at birth, God has given you his name. That you've been adopted into his family. That he is your heavenly father. That that you you are not some second-class citizen in God's family. See, Paul, Paul knows this as he prays for the Ephesians. And it impacts the, the way that he prays. So let me ask you, you know, in the quietness of your own heart, you know, do you believe this for yourself? Is this, is this what's in your mind, in your heart, as you bow your knees to pray to your heavenly Father? Now, I, I love my dad. I, we, we talked on the phone uh, yesterday. And uh, you know, uh, yesterday was my, my parents' 46th uh, wedding anniversary, which was wonderful to talk to them. And I uh, love my dad. And, but many of you know that, that my dad wasn't a Christian um, whenever I was growing up. And, and then over the years, I've, I've been blessed with, with quite a few really godly, special men who served as mentors in my life. You know, men who... Who, 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 were, who were godly Christian fathers raising, raising their sons. And, and more than once, after spending time with some of these men, I've often thought to myself, gosh, I mean, I love my dad. I don't, I don't want a different dad, but, but what, what it must have been like to be, to be one of the sons of these men, these godly fathers during those formative years. I mean, how, how, how blessed and fortunate were their sons to have a dad like this? You don't have to think that way about your heavenly father. Listen to how Pastor Richard Phillips puts it. It's one thing to admire a man as an ideal father when you have no right to approach him as his own child. It is something far better to look to the perfect father and say, Daddy, to him. This is our privilege. It's your privilege. And it energized Paul's approach to prayer. See, the Bible goes to great lengths to assure us, to assure you over and over and over again that God is your heavenly Father and that he loves you. He delights in you with an everlasting love. I mean, it's clear that that God wants you to know this and to never, ever, ever doubt it. I mean, mean, think, think back. Think back to when we were studying John. Think back to one of the last things that Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room 
Really just moments, just moments before he's going to be arrested and then taken to the cross. In John 16, 27, Jesus says to them, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. God the Father loves you. The Puritan John Owen put it this way. The Father's love ought to be looked on as the fountain from which all other sweetnesses flow. How few of the saints are experimentally acquainted with this privilege of holding immediate communion with the Father in love. With what anxious, doubtful thoughts do they look upon him? What fears, what questionings are there of his goodwill and kindness? At the best, many think there is no sweetness at all in him towards us. But what is purchased at the high price of the blood of Christ? How do you approach your heavenly Father in prayer? You know, are you acquainted with the assurance of the sweetness of his love for you in Christ? Are you assured of that? Or do you approach him with anxious, doubtful thoughts and, and fears as you question and doubt whether he really loves you, even though the Bible repeatedly tells you over and over and over again that he loves you? He really does love you. As we sang earlier in the service, think what Father's smiles are thine. You have the Father's smile. And Paul prays to the Father. Paul prays to the Father as a son, as a dearly loved child. See, dear Christian, that's who you are. The question is, do you believe it? Believe it. Paul prays to the Father as a son, and we also see that Paul prays to the Father as a son with reverence. So look back again at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So, so Jews normally stood to pray, which is what you will see even today you know, on a Friday evening with the beginning of Shabbat at the Welling Wall in Jerusalem as Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews they stand and they rock back and forth in prayer. Now, there are examples throughout the scriptures of people kneeling and falling down their face in prayer, such as Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Stephen as he was stoned to death in Acts 7. However, kneeling or falling on one's face in prayer indicated an exceptional degree of earnestness and reverence. And I think that's Paul's point here. As Pastor Sinclair Ferguson puts it, Paul's kneeling is not a formal religious habit, but the deep instinct of someone who senses that the only appropriate position before this great God, this big God, is to lower oneself before him in admiration and awe. You know, as I said earlier, that Paul has a big view of God and a small view of man, a small view of himself. And this is why he bows his knees before the Father in prayer. You see, Paul prays to the Father as a son with reverence. But in coming before our Heavenly Father in prayer with reverence does not mean that we must lack boldness. We must lack confidence. See, that's what we see. Paul prays to the Father as a son with reverence, but also with, with confidence. So look again at verse 14, 15, the beginning of verse 16. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant. And then Paul's about to begin to, to pray for the various, for the Ephesians. But do you see that Paul prays with reverence and humility, yet he prays with confidence and boldness? Do you see that? Paul prays according to the riches of God's glory. He prays according to the riches of God's glory because Paul knows that God gives to his children not merely out of his riches, but according to his riches. According to his riches. The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is is that generous of a giver to you, his, his child? You see, God is not miserly. He's not cheap. He's not stingy, he's not tight-fisted when it comes to to giving to and providing for his children. Think about what we read in James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. See, that verse literally reads, let him ask the constantly giving God. You see, whenever God gives generously to his children who come to him in prayer, God is merely acting according to his character. This is who God is. He really is the giving God. He's that generous. He's that good. I mean, think about our shorter catechism, question four. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And then those three words, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, apply to everything that comes next. That he's infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, in his holiness, in his justice. And he is, God is infinite in his goodness. In his truth, he's infinite in his goodness. He's infinite, unchangeable, eternal, unchangeable in his goodness towards you. His dearly loved child. Right, so it's that whisper in the back of your head that keeps saying, God is withholding from you. It's a lie. That whisper that says, you know what? You, you can't trust him. He's being tight-fisted with you. That's a lie. Now, we should certainly think of God as more than merely the giving God, but our God is always the giving God. He's not stingy. He's not miserly. It's one of the reasons, you know, week after week that I, that I say to you that this is absolutely true. And it is given to you in love for your good. Because I'm trying to remind us that that God is, he's always the giving God. He's never miserly. He's never stingy. That he gives to us according to his riches. And we're invited to remember this every time we read his word. And we're invited to remember this every time we go to him in prayer. So we can pray with boldness and, and with confidence. And we can ask God and plead with him and beg him to move and work in our lives and our circumstances and our hearts and to move and work in the lives of those around us. We can pray according to his riches, the riches of his glory. But now please remember, the answers to our prayers are never a matter of God's ability. It's not whether or not God can do it. And the answers to our prayers are never a matter of, of whether or not we, we can successfully manipulate God by, by somehow saying the right magic words or saying the right words the right way. 
It's not a matter of saying the right words the right way with enough faith. It's not a matter of saying the right words in the right way with enough faith enough times. That God always answers our prayers according to his good and perfect will. But the point I want us to take away from this passage today is to pray to our Heavenly Father as his children with reverence, but also with confidence, with boldness. The old pastor Henry Ironside put it this way. He says, you cannot ask too much. I mean, I could just stop there. When you go to pray, don't forget, you, you can never ask too much. That's a point that Paul's going to make as we move uh, towards the very, very end of Ephesians 3. You cannot ask too much. There was a man who came to a king asking for something, and the king gave to him out of his abundant treasure until the man said, Your majesty, that's too much. That is too much. The king smiled and said, It may seem too much for you to take, but it's not too much for me to give. And so our blessed God gives out of his abundance according to the riches of his glory. You know, if only we would pray like we believe this. I mean, think about that. I mean, how, how, how would your prayer life change? How would it change? How would it change if we actually believe this? I mean, how, 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 bi- how big are your prayers? I mean, when's the last time you prayed a crazy, big, audacious prayer? When's the last time you thought, you know, maybe this is a prayer too big for me to pray? Maybe this is irresponsible for me to pray such a big prayer. I think part of what Paul's saying here is there's no such thing. That you cannot ask too much. So we see why Paul prayed, how Paul prayed, and then finally, and I'll just touch on this briefly, for what did Paul pray? We're going to be looking at the rest of Paul's prayer in greater detail in the weeks to come. But I want you to listen to what he prays for the Ephesians. And as you listen, think about how, how Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus is, is often quite different from our prayers and our prayers for one another. Listen to what he prays, beginning in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now there's a lot there, I'm not going to go into all of it right now, but notice that Paul prays for the Ephesians to be strengthened inwardly with God's power through the Holy Spirit. He prays for for Christ to dwell in their hearts. He he asks God to to enable them to comprehend the love of God for them in Christ. And remember, earlier in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul makes this incredible statement of what God is doing in and through the church, a declaration of what the church is intended to be. And now Paul prays to ask God to give the Ephesian Christians the spiritual resources they need to live out this high calling to be this type of church. Now, I've spent, I've spent a lot of time over the last you know, 14, 15 years in prayer meetings in our church with, with, church, with church members and with friends and with elders and with deacons. And I've heard a lot of the ways that we pray for one another. And the truth is, this is the most praying church, the most prayerful church I've ever been a part of. 
But, but there is a difference between the way that Paul prays for the Ephesians, the way he prays for First Prayers Ephesus, and, and the way that we often pray for one another. Do, do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? Paul, Paul's prayer is for their spiritual concerns, their spiritual needs. It's for their growth to maturity. Okay, now hear me on this. It is not, it is not in any way wrong for us to pray for our physical needs. That's not wrong. We ought to do that. It's not wrong to pray for our physical needs and for healings and for careers and for better relationships. We should pray for all of these things. God wants us to pray for all of these things. It would be wrong for us not to pray for these things, but I I think we shouldn't miss that Paul's greatest concern was not for the physical needs of the Ephesians. His concern is first and foremost for their spiritual needs. I mean, that, that some of our elders and deacons will tell you that there are some times when we're looking at our, our prayer list of prayer requests for our church, and, and I will lead the group to first, for the first 10 or 15 minutes, to only pray for the spiritual needs that we see there. We're, we're going to pray for the physical, but let's save those till later, and let's begin to pray for the spiritual. And I actually, and I see that, one, it, it's a challenge. It's a challenge because, that one, there aren't a lot of requests for spiritual things on the prayer request. Mostly it's physical things, physical healings, relationships, jobs, pregnancies, very physical things, important things. But most of it's that way. But it's also a challenge because I think that we, we don't often pray for our spiritual needs the way we should. And so in the weeks to come, we'll be thinking about this. What are your spiritual needs today? What are the spiritual needs of those around you? Your spouse, your children, your parents, your classmates. I mean, how would our prayer life for ourselves, our spouse, our children, our city group, our Sunday school classes, our coworkers, our classmates, our neighbors, how would our prayer life change if we elevated their spiritual needs in our prayers? See, Paul, Paul prayed a big, audacious, bold prayer for the Ephesians. I want you to listen to it again as we close our time together today with me praying this prayer for you. Okay, so let's, let's pray. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.